The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The Gospel of the Lord. As we come to hear from the living God and his word again, let's, let's pause to pray. Gracious and almighty God, we thank you for the gift of your spirit and the gift of your word. And we ask now that the same spirit that inspired the writing of these words, inspired John in the writing of his gospel, that same spirit would now work in our hearts and our minds to make us to know your love and your truth, to make us more fully your own, we pray. In the strong name of Jesus, amen. Astronaut and pilot Jim Lovell, in an interview made famous in the movie Apollo 13, once recounted the experience of flying at night, a, a naval jet, in which the instrumentation had ceased to function. Without a working compass or the light of the sun, with the, the running lights of the aircraft carrier dimmed, extinguished for security reasons, Lovell was largely blind in the night sky. In the darkness, unable to find his way back to the aircraft carrier from which he had departed. In fact, before they ceased to function, his instruments had been leading him further and further away from the place he needed to be. You can imagine the potential panic and distress of such a situation out there in the darkness above the Pacific Ocean. The feeling of being lost and alone unable to find your way home. I wonder when it was that you last, most, felt at home. In asking that, I mean something more than location only, home being more than a specific building or 
geographical spot. Home is where the heart is, we say, and we mean a place where we find rest, peace, and security. Allison Jean, the mother of Botham Jean, who was killed last year by a police officer in Dallas in his own apartment, spoke powerfully this week at the sentencing for the, the murder, for murder of uh, the sentencing of the officer who had killed him. And she described her son that night as being at home in his sanctuary, a place of seeming repose and safety, a place where you can let your guard down, where you can be at rest. Where's that place for you? When did you last have a taste of that? For some of us, the, the answer might be never. Jean's murder is a reminder that for many in society, there is no place of true sanctuary. And statistics about loneliness and alienation suggest that even for those who are not in danger because of the color of their skin, the feeling of being at home remains elusive. We often feel lost, alone, unable to return. Texas singer-songwriter David Ramirez in his song, Stick Around, a song I love, articulates this elusive longing to be among those who know and name him, a longing to put down roots and find rest. The music video for that song depicts Ramirez walking just up to the home he longs after, but ultimately unable to enter in. For him, there is no going home. For us too, perhaps with our past of shame and hurt with broken relationships, in an unstable world of disaster and injustice, perhaps there's a feeling of never being at rest, never finding sanctuary, never at home. We're like Lovell in that plane, isolated and without the means of finding our way back. We're in the midst of a series on the questions that Jesus asks. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus is depicted as asking all kinds of questions, some 300 of them. And over the past weeks, we've looked at a few of those, questions like, do you want to be well? What do you seek? Last week, do you also want to leave? Questions that invite, that prompt, that challenge and draw us in. Do you understand what I have done to you? This is the question of our text this morning. Coming in the 13th verse of the 13th chapter of the story of Jesus' life, written by the man named John. This question, do you understand, is preceded by one of the most dramatic scenes of Jesus' recorded life and ministry, a scene that has captured the attention of Christians throughout the centuries, the washing of the disciples' feet. This scene, of course, is the setting and inspiration for Monday Thursday in the church calendar, the Thursday just before Easter. And that service often, is often accompanied by foot washing, reenacting Jesus' actions. Of course, Jesus' foot washing here is impromptu. Whereas I suspect Monday, Thursday services begin with feet that are cleaner than on any other Sunday, any other gathering of the church. But do you understand what I have done to you, Jesus asked afterward? And the phrasing of that question gets at our potential discomfort with the situation. Something perhaps we share with the Apostle Peter. We're the object. We're 
the one acted upon, the one being served. There's a vulnerability in that that we're perhaps uncomfortable with. There's something about the question that sounds coercive even maybe, right? What I've done to you. With our priority on personal space and privacy and autonomy, there's something uneasy about that question. The idea of exposing our feet, this part of our body, is something that makes us vulnerable. Some of us here today have the experience of not being at home in our own bodies, at home in our own skin. And for some of us, with that experience, the sensation is rooted precisely in something done to us, in some way that we were coerced, some way that our personal agency was overridden by one more powerful than us. For some of us, I know this has taken place in the context of spiritual communities, such that we're left estranged, homeless in the church, because of things done to you. Professor Sarah Williams, in her remarkable book, The Shaming of the Strong, describes a moment where she was prompted in a way by the Holy Spirit to say to a colleague, a fellow professor at the University of Oxford, God doesn't rape people, you know? No, but people do, is the sad reply. And a window into that colleague's sense of dislocation, isolation is revealed, not at home. For these kinds of reasons, some of us might be drawn to a translation of this question that some Bibles do have that put this question as for you. <coughs> do you understand what I have done for you? And this language does express something powerful of Jesus' service here. The language of for you expresses something of his loving service, as we'll see. But the language of done to you also captures something here. Something here that's real in Jesus' dramatic action, it's that he means to change his disciples. He means to change us. He means to transform us. By his service, he seeks to do something to you and I this morning. He means to bring us home. Do you understand? Before the question, before the dramatic action, the writer John depicts Jesus and the disciples around the table, about to have this meal, or very beginning to have the meal, before the feast of Passover. They're all reclining, pulling up at the table to eat, an everyday kind of scene. And it's from this scene, from this posture, that something unusual happens. Jesus rises from the table. He stands up from the head of the table. He rises. He rises to serve, he rises to love them to the end. This action in the scene makes me think about that moment that sometimes happens when you're about to have a meal, a dinner, a well-laid-out spread, and the people you're with are gathering around the table, pulling up chairs, and you realize in that moment something essential has been forgotten. The Tabasco, the soy sauce, the salt, whatever it is. So a person rises, they get up because the meal is not complete and cannot proceed without this essential element. Maybe it's not an item, it's an action, turning off the burner on the oven, grabbing the lighter for the candles, whatever it is, you can't truly enter in, you can't really be at rest until this action is completed. 
The disciples and Jesus cannot truly recline, cannot truly enter into the meal until this action is completed. John writes that Jesus rises knowing two things, two fundamental things. He rises in the knowledge of these two great truths. First, in verse 1, that the hour of his departure to the Father had come. The climactic hour of his life has arrived. Jesus is aware. And verse 3 expands on this truth that Jesus knows that he had come from God and was going back to God. You see, he rises knowing where he was from and where he was going, in a way, knowing who he is. From that knowledge, he rises. The second great truth Jesus knows is also named in verse 3. Knowing, John writes, that the Father had given all things into his hands. That is, aware of his triumph, aware of his victory, aware of his mastery. It's one thing to be strong, to be powerful, to have one, but it's another thing to know these realities about yourself, to know your strength, to know your triumph, to know your mastery. Reclining at the table before he gets up, Jesus knows these things. The knowledge of these two realities, that all things have been given to him and that he's from and about to return to the Father, might be summed up in this phrase Jesus uses it in verse 13. After he asks the question, he tells the disciples, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Those final two little words are a very big deal in the Gospel of John. I am. Throughout the story, John tells Jesus, keeps using this phrase to describe himself. I am the good shepherd. I'm the door. I'm the bread of life, as we heard last week. I am, I am, I am. This phrase appears so often in the Gospel of John that it's come to be seen as a title in and of itself. A title linking back to the Old Testament and God's revealing of himself to Moses at the burning bush, where he gives his name as I am who I am. This connection and Jesus' repeated use of the phrase suggests an awareness, a claim that Jesus is making. Before Abraham was, I am. You see, Jesus rises. He rises to love and to humbly serve from this place of mastery, of victory, security, safe in the knowledge of his return to the Father. He rises knowing he is God. Do you understand what I have done to you? We live in a world where those in power, those who know themselves powerful, demonstrate that power through the use of it to their own advantage, don't we? In the language of Jesus in Mark 10, or a related passage to John 13, we're used to those in authority lording it over others, tyrants. The current events rolling out of Washington, D.C., center on, reveal the way those in power, wherever they fall on the political spectrum, so predictably use their positions for their own advantage. In self-dealing and corruption, there's a, an article, a, 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 an opinion piece in the New York Times this week all about it and about how it's all so predictable. In power, human beings use that power 
for their own advantage. The idea becomes even that using it for our own advantage, getting others to do what we want them to do, is a demonstration of our power. I'm going to make you do this because I can. I'm going to take this for myself because I am able to do so. No one will stop me. We all have that experience. We expect it, perhaps. But this is not the way of God. This is not the way of Jesus. Not the way of the one who's made the way of the cross to be the way of life. You see, Jesus, knowing himself to be God triumphant, knowing all things are his, he rises. He rises to serve. This is how he will demonstrate his power. This is how he will demonstrate his mastery and glory. There's something paradoxical, something so counterintuitive about this that the disciples in this moment cannot grasp it. It's only later, afterward, he says. But this is the way of Jesus. This is the way of life. This is the character of God that Jesus reveals. Jesus most clearly reveals himself as God in his service to us. Jesus most accurately demonstrates who God is when he lays aside these outer garments and he takes up this towel. You see, he's most glorious and godlike in his service. He most demonstrates his mastery when he humbles himself for us, when he sacrifices, when he lays it all down that he might lead us home. There's the words of an ancient poem reflecting on this passage that reads, Behold the disposition of the one who made us. See of what sort is the attitude of the creator for his creatures. They have reclined and he has stood. They are fed and he serves. They are washed and he wipes them clean. Have mercy, have mercy, have mercy on us. You who is with all people and receive all all people. Such is Jesus' mastery, such is his power, such is his victory that he freely serves as a demonstration of that. He doesn't take power for himself. He doesn't puff himself up in some kind of grandiose display, but he humbles himself. He kneels. This is God's good character. He can be trusted. He can be trusted with the power he has. He can be trusted to love you to the end. For many of us, I suspect this gospel passage, this moment is familiar. We've probably heard teaching or sermons about it before. And often it's explained to us as a call to service. That Jesus' question, do you understand what I've done to you, is one that's answered affirmatively in a life of service to others. In this way, the, the question, do you understand, comes like one from a parent to a child or a master to an apprentice, right? Do you understand? Well, show me you understand by doing it, right? Don't just tell me you understand. I'm asking you to clean your room. Clean up your room. Then I'll know you understood me. Show me you understand. Follow my example. Clearly, this is part of what the passage is getting at. This is a part of Jesus' call upon us 
through his actions here. Blessed are you if you follow this example, to paraphrase verse 17, follow on the way of the cross. Yet if this is our primary takeaway from this text, a call to serve, from Jesus' example, the question he asks us, if the primary thought is, well, we should be inspired toward and engage further in service, however good that outcome might be, and there's definitely opportunities to serve around here, Lord knows. But if that's our primary takeaway, I believe we will have misheard Jesus' question today in the thrust of this passage. You see, Jesus' question, do you understand what I have done to you, is asked, needs to be asked, not simply as an invitation to the same kind of life, but it needs to be asked as a follow-up to the extraordinary thing he has done. The sheer wonder of what he has accomplished in his laying aside and taking up and his rising to serve demands the question, do you understand what has just happened? So you see, for us, the stress is not upon the service we might now do following him, but in the service he has and does render to us, for us. Jim Lovell, in that interview we began with, recounts how lost and alone in the dark with no means of returning home, he spotted in the inky blackness of the sea this certain glow. Upon closer inspection, he saw that what he was looking at was the glow of bioluminescent algae that was phosphorently lighting up after it had been churned by the wake of Lovell's home aircraft carrier. And in the interview, he describes how it was laid out like a carpet, leading him home, leading him to sanctuary. In the Old Testament, the washing of one's feet was the actions of hospitality, was a sign of one having arrived at home. So Abraham, in Genesis 18, when he welcomes three strangers, makes sure their feet are washed. David, in 2 Samuel 11, when he implores Uriah, back from battle to go home, tells him, go, wash your feet, be at rest. Washing feet is what one does when they arrive at home. You're not fully home until you've cleansed your feet of the dirt of the road. Done by someone else, it's an act of welcome as well as this act of entry. So you see, in washing the disciples' feet, yes, Jesus serves them, but not just in this abstract way. Through his cleansing, he is making them at home. Through him, through his cleansing, they are at rest in a way that they cannot fully understand until afterward. Until after he has, much like the garments and towel, laid aside his life and taken it up again. You see, God's great act of hospitality is at the cross. This is where God's loving service is rendered in its most distilled form. This is the heart of Jesus' life and ministry. This is what he offers to you and me this day that we might find our home, our place of rest in God through him. This is the service he seeks to render. In the very next chapter of the story John tells, Jesus declares, I go 
I go to prepare a place, a home for you in my Father's home. The very beginning of the Gospel of John begins with the promise that those who receive Jesus, who believe in his name, he gives the right to be called children of God. That is, those who are at home in the Father's house. In these same chapters, Jesus will tell his disciples, I don't leave you as orphans, but I'm sending a comforter. I'm sending you one who will bring the experience of home even as you are on the way. Think of Lovell up there, and he's not home until he gets to the aircraft carrier, but think of the relief, the sense of safety and security in seeing the way forward, a taste of home even before he's arrived. And think of who it is that this offer is extended to. It's extended to Judas, who is set in his heart to betray Jesus, and Jesus knows it but still he loves him. It's extended to Peter, who for all his pious bluster will shortly deny even knowing Jesus. He too is offered a share in Christ. And it's offered to each of these fearful disciples who will abandon, who will falter, who will flee. Jesus knows it, and he loves them to the end to the full. These are the ones he rises to serve. The feet of these are those that he washes. So do we understand what he has done for us? Do you understand the majesty, the magnitude of it? Do you understand the hope and promise of who he is and what he has done? No. No, we do not. Because who could plumb the depths of this mystery? Who could, who could grasp the fullness of what Jesus has accomplished here? The knowledge is just beyond us, even here and now. But in our limited understanding, our limited grasping of it, we can receive it. We can receive what he has done to us, for us. We can receive the offer of his cleansing service. We can accept the goodness of what he has done for us today. We can bring our dirty feet, our sin-stained selves, our having made a mess of it, of having been lost and alone, having this week perhaps gotten ourselves dirty, failed and fallen. We can come and find in him the cleansing the rest, the home, the sanctuary, the new life we desire. We can find in him the one to whom all things belong, one who loves us to the end. As we've done these last few weeks, we're going to close with a moment, a minute of silence. We have an image that I'll invite you to consider, to pay attention to, uh, uh, an artist depiction of Jesus' washing of the disciples' feet. And I always want you to take a posture of silence and stillness, inviting the Spirit to speak. And it may be that God has areas of service that He's calling you to, that there are things that you might do following His example. 
But more than that, and prior to that, I think that what the Lord has for us is an experience of his service to us. The ways that he leads us home, the way that that he loves us to the end, the ways that he is still even now serving us. So I invite you to listen for his words that confirm and deepen that truth as we take a minute in silence here. Let us close in prayer. O Lord, our God, you love your people. You have placed all the saints in the hands of Jesus. And you have given us Jesus to be for us a leader and a servant. We would each one of us ask this morning that we may be washed as to our feet. We trust that you have bathed us once and for all in the sin-removing fountain symbolized by baptism. And you've given us the renewing of our minds through Jesus. But oh, for daily cleansing. Do you see any fault in us? We know that you do wash us that we may be clean. Are we deficient in any virtue? Supply it that we may exhibit a perfect character following the example of your Son to the glory of you who has made us new in Christ. O Lord and Master, you who did wash your disciples' feet of old, still be very patient toward us, very condescending toward our faults, And from this place, go on with us, we pray you, till your great work shall be completed, and we will be sisters and brothers of the firstborn, like him. Here we are, Lord. We belong to you. Our hearts catch at the word, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. It's because we are your own that we have hope. You wash our feet because we are your own. How sweet is the mercy which first took us to its heart and made us all its own and now continues to deal tenderly with us that we might share in him and he in us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.